0: Yes. Girl power. Girl power. This is the story of the girl who fought for more, Daisy Bindi. Read by singer and actor Christine Anu. And if you're an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person, we want to let you know that this episode contains the name of someone who has died. Bang!
1: Mumaring head behind a boab tree. Bang! She blinked with every gunshot. A whisper came from the mulla, mulla flowers across the dusty clearing. Psst, mumaring, over here. It was her dad. He had his hands gripped tightly around their kelpie's muzzle. A slight whimper slipped through the canine's gritted teeth. Mummering whispered, keep him quiet. She held her breath and stared into their dog's eyes, willing him not to make a peep. A minute passed and another until the welcome sound of the policeman's wagon started up and then faded away into the night. The dog howled. He sensed what had happened to his pack. Mummering stepped out from behind the boab trunk and crouched down with her hands outstretched. It's okay, boy. You're okay. We'll protect you. He ran over and licked Mummering's hands, but there was no tail wag, not like he usually did. The police had a habit of paying their camp late-night visits. Mummering never knew why, but they seemed to take an evil pleasure from killing the Nyangomara people's dogs. A sick sport. It was heart-wrenching enough to lose your best mates, but it also made life a heck of a lot tougher for Mummering's mob. Their dogs weren't just pets, they were helpers. They used them to hunt roos and often Roos were all they had to eat. Moomering was one of hundreds of Aboriginal slaves working on cattle and sheep stations across Australia. Slaves is a harsh word, but what else would you call people who were forced to work for nothing? Occasionally they'd be paid with flour and tobacco, but not money. At the station where Moomering worked, From dawn till dusk, the bosses didn't even give them shelter. They all lived on the edge of a creek, herded together just like the cattle. Except the cattle were better fed. The worst part was, you couldn't leave. If you tried to, the police would arrest you, shackle your ankles and take you back. Sometimes, they'd beat you. Sometimes, you'd just disappear never to be heard from again. It was hopeless, but Mummering had never known a different way of life. From the moment she could walk, she was learning how to do laundry and mop floors for white people. She started using her English name, Daisy, to try to connect with them. If they just listened, they'd understand we're the same, she said. We're human beings too. As if he had heard her call, a white man named Don McLeod was gathering Aboriginal people together for a meeting in a town up the road. He was an activist who believed all people should be treated equally, no matter what colour their skin was. You can trust him, Daisy was told. The elders have asked him to be their spokesman. Daisy listened as Don explained that it was unfair for Aboriginal people to have to work for free. You should walk off the job, he said. It's called a strike, but it'll only work if there are lots of you. Daisy puffed at her chest and pulled back her shoulders. We will strike, she vowed. I will make it happen. As the sun rose and the station masters stirred from their slumber, Daisy fled. She risked being caught. She risked being shackled. She risked being beaten. She risked her life, but Daisy was a fighter. She mounted a horse and rode from camp to camp and station to station, recruiting rebels. ''We don't have to work for free,'' she said. ''It's not fair. White people get paid. Money, not rations. ''We need to strike and stick up for ourselves.'' Lots of people were scared and they had every right to be. A police car arrived in the darkness after Daisy had spent days spreading word about her plans. Daisy Bindi, the officer asked. She stood tall. That's me. The enticing of a native to leave their place of employment is an offence. Native was the word white people used to describe Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders back then. Daisy folded her arms, unflinching. Let it be a warning, he said. The officer looked sideways at Daisy's dog. And then he left. We're leaving, Daisy yelled. Everyone, on. Ninety-six people clambered on the back of a truck, bound for the strike headquarters. They risked being caught. They risked being shackled. They risked being beaten. They risked their lives. Mums and dads held bouncy kids on laps with the wind rushing through their hair. Are you sure we're doing the right thing, Daisy? They asked. She nodded. Of course, she said, you can trust me. Daisy had become their leader, steering them all across the desert towards a new future. truck slowed as it neared the township. A police officer waved them down. Who's in charge here? He asked. Daisy's hair stood on end, but she was a fighter. She jumped down from the trailer and smoothed her skirt. I'm in charge, she said. The officer looked her up and down. You off to see Don McLeod? The policeman asked. Daisy gulped. Never heard of him, she said. The officer paused a moment. Daisy didn't look like the other strike leaders. They were all men, and she was a woman in a fancy dress, no less. Who are all these people then, he asked. Daisy smiled. Family and friends, she said. Our boss has been good enough to give us a few hours off to visit some cousins not far from here. The officer took one last look at the truckload of people. He waved the driver through. It worked. He was fooled. Daisy couldn't believe her luck. They'd made it. Almost 800 Aboriginal workers took part in the Pilbara strike. Some were arrested, some were beaten, some disappeared. But Daisy was a fighter. And she could see her people were strong together. For three long years, they persisted. The workers, the station managers and the government refused to come to an agreement. Is it worth it, a young woman asked Daisy. We're still hungry and we're still poor. Daisy held the woman's hands and stared into her eyes, willing her to carry on. It's not just about the food and money, she said. If they listened, they'd understand we're the same. We're human beings, too. The workers waited and waited. And then they waited some more. Until the standoff worked station bosses began to pay wages, while the truly stubborn ones went without and their businesses suffered. The Nyangumara people mobbed Daisy, smothering her in hugs. We did it, they yelled. Thank you, Daisy Bindi. Thank you, Mumaring. Daisy never did go back to the cattle station. Instead, She helped start a new Aboriginal community where her people lived as equals, with their own families, homes and paid jobs. There was just one thing missing. I don't want the kids to turn out like me, Daisy said. I want them to be able to read and write. She saddled up a horse and went for a ride to think about how to get an education for the kids in her community. And then she fell. Ah! Her leg was gashed. It was nasty, but nothing she couldn't handle. She rode home to rest. Mrs Bindi, the doctor said. I'm afraid we need to operate immediately. It's a matter of life or death. Daisy had diabetes and, as a result, her wound had become infected. She had to have her leg amputated below the knee if she wanted to survive. After the surgery, we'll give you a referral to a clinic where you can get an artificial leg, the doctor said. Daisy took one last look at her two feet side by side. Where is this clinic, she asked. Perth, said the doctor. I've always wanted to go there, she said. Daisy Bindi walked up the red dirt road with a new leg and good news. I had a chat to some important people while I was in Perth, she said. They've agreed to pay for a school for us. You can learn to read and write, in language and in English. The Umara kids mobbed Daisy, smothering her in hugs again. You did it! They yelled. Thank you, Daisy Bindi. Thank you, Mumaring. They had listened. They had understood. The Ummara were the same. They were human beings too. And thanks to Daisy, they'd never be slaves again. Daisy Bindi Mumaring was a fighter. She risked her life. She survived and she won. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Fierce Girls. I'm Christina Anu. I'm a singer, songwriter, actor and radio presenter. You can hear more stories about other amazing Fierce Girls on the podcast, like this one about Olympic champion Catherine Freeman.
2: Catherine, wake up, her mum yelled. You have to train. She opened one eye and looked at the homemade poster on her wall. I am the world's greatest athlete. She rolled over and groaned. Think of Anne-Marie, her mum said. You've got two good arms and two good legs. Use them. Anne-Marie was Catherine's older sister. She had cerebral palsy, which meant she couldn't walk or talk. Catherine threw back the covers and never complained about training again. Kathy Freeman, Australia she leapt as the gun burst everyone was on her side their enthusiasm was carrying her across the finish line as she carried their hopes on her shoulders the moment that kathy freeman has worked towards that moment when she will stand on the highest position of the olympic victory dais She did it. Catherine Astrid Salom Freeman had won an Olympic gold medal. Aboriginal and Australian flags waved throughout the crowd. She draped the flags together and waved them in the air. She smiled as she thought of Anne Marie and giggled to herself as her words rang true. I I am the world's greatest athlete.
1: To hear more awesome episodes of the Fierce Girls podcast, go to the ABC Listen app or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And keep being fierce. Keep being you.
0: Roll the credits. Fierce Girls is produced by a bunch of super fierce women. Its executive producers are Justine Kelly and Monique Bowley. It's produced by Laura McAuliffe and Rebecca Armstrong. The stories are written by the uber-talented Samantha Turnbull. Judy Rapley is the amazing audio engineer who puts in the cool sound effects like this one. (laughs) Kelly Reardon is the boss who lets us make fierce podcasts like this one. Fierce Girls is a production of the ABC Audio Studios.